Our second lesson comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 8 and beginning in verse 12 and reading just down through verse 17 today. But again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We came last week to this uh, transitional moment in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where his emphasis begins to fall upon the full assurance of salvation that belongs to those who are in Christ Jesus. That assurance has been mentioned prior to this in several places, but now his full attention is being turned to it in this glorious chapter that begins with the announcement that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That declaration that we have been completely and forever pardoned from our sin is, in and of itself, enough to invoke a deep sense of liberty in the heart and mind of every believer. The notion that we will never be held accountable for our sin because Christ Jesus was held accountable for our sin instead is tremendously liberating. To know that God, out of his great love, was motivated to establish peace with us, not through obedience to the law, but by his grace through faith, is a marvel that deserves constant contemplation. But as great as one and wonderful as that is, there is still more. Paul goes on to say that because of what Christ has done, it has been made possible for the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us. That is, not only has the righteousness of Christ been imputed to us, given to our account, but because the power of sin has been broken in us and we are no longer slaves to sin, it is possible by means of God's own indwelling spirit for us to begin experiencing victory over the sin and temptations to sin that dwell within our flesh. As we said last week, God is engaged in a full redemption of those who belong to Christ. A redemption that is not only spiritual, but one that addresses every part of what makes us, us. 
body, mind, spirit, and soul, God's ultimate work in us will eradicate every vestige of sin in us as well as all the ravages of sin in us. So even though our body will decay and experience physical death as a consequence of our sin in Adam, God will not leave us in the grave, but will one day resurrect our body in the same way that He raised Christ Jesus to life. When God is finished perfecting the believer, it will be as though sin had never even touched us, so perfect will He make us to be. Now, this full redemption is rooted in God's gracious love. God is not content for us to remain as we are, but is in the process of conforming us to the image of His Son, ultimately bringing about our full glorification, which will make us fit for His heavenly realm. This conformation to the image of His Son is what we call sanctification. It is the process by which the sin nature that dwells within our flesh is mortified or put to death by means of our cooperative efforts with the Spirit of Christ who has taken up residence in all those upon whom the grace of God has fallen. Now Paul takes up this process in earnest beginning here in verse 12. Notice that this statement is designed to transform our thinking by what is said and by what is left unsaid. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We have an obligation. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now that sounds and feels like an incomplete thought, because that's exactly what it is. Paul is addressing the saints in Rome. He fondly refers to them here as brothers. So he's not speaking of those who are unregenerate, but to those who have come to faith in Christ. And he declares what is true of those who have done so. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But what is left unsaid is to whom or to what we are debtors. We are debtors, but no longer to the flesh. There was a point in time when, because we were slaves to sin, we lived as though the sin which dwells within our flesh was our master because it was. But that's no longer true, for we were crucified with Christ. When we were born from above, we became a new creation. The old passed away, the new came into being, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He also writes to the Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. When Jesus declared in His dying breath, it is finished, He was declaring that the debt was paid in full and could no longer be held against us. So we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
In other words, when the sin that still dwells in our flesh calls us to act in a way that is true to the flesh, but contrary to the Spirit of God, we are under no obligation to obey that tempting call. We are no longer a debtor to the flesh to live like that. We are now debtors to Him who paid our debt. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. Now that is to say that it is now possible for those who have been redeemed to live in a manner that is not governed by the sin that still dwells within our flesh, but rather to walk according to the Spirit of God, who also dwells within us. Now, I do not know how revelatory this is to you, but I do know that there are many believers who have essentially thrown up the white flag of surrender where resistance to sin is concerned. There may have been a time when they put up a certain measure of resistance, but with every failure, they concluded that it was impossible to win the battle, and so they stopped crying. trying. This is how God made me. And instead of running to the Father, seeking pardon and release, they merely accepted that there was no victory to be had and that they were destined to live in spiritual defeat until Christ returned. And instead of pursuing a greater spiritual discipline, They headed for the Barca lounger to sit and wait until Jesus came back. But that's a prescription for defeat. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. While it is true that we have been crucified with Christ, Paul is not saying that the process of sanctification is by our strength alone. He is saying that the means for achieving such victory over sin is by the Spirit of God. God has given to every person who comes to Christ the necessary spiritual power to resist temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, he says, that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, our sanctification is a cooperative effort between us and the Holy Spirit. God has done a redemptive work in us that has made it possible for us to begin living in a new way that Paul describes here as according to the Spirit. And he said in verse 5, which we examined last week, that it involves setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, it requires a conscious, willful decision on our part to focus our thinking on a new way. While our minds may be bombarded with worldly thoughts throughout any given day, we are called to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He admonishes the Philippians to pay attention to those whom they are looking to for examples. Saying, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And he then encourages them to think not on earthly things, but things that are worthy of their consideration. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. To walk according to the Spirit requires a conscious decision on our part to turn our attention away from the profane things of this world and towards those things that bear the characteristics of heaven and the sacred things of the Lord. Now, we need to notice that in verse 13, the action that is taking place is by us. The verb in that phrase, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that is a present active indicative, which is to say that the subject, you, plural in this case, are the actor. You're the actor. The action that's taking place is not happening to you, but rather you're the one doing it and you are doing it presently. The process of sanctification is not something that the Spirit does to us and we simply wait patiently until He finishes the job. It is something that we are engaged in by the power of the Spirit who dwells within us. The Spirit is actively at work in us, changing our affections, wooing us to Christ, producing spiritual fruit in us. But there is an aspect of all of this that requires our full effort. Paul encourages the Philippians when he writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the word that Paul uses there for work out your own salvation is a word that means to bear down to the ground, to subdue, to overcome. In a simple sense, it means work at it and accomplish this task. And in the Scriptures, it is used in both a negative and a positive sense. We've come across this word actually several times in Paul's letter already, in which he is using it to speak of sin working in us, producing deathly consequences, but also as he's talking about it here in the 8th chapter. And in the Philippian passage, he's urging his brothers in Philippi to exert the same kind of effort 
to subdue the sin in them, to bring it to the ground. Not so they might be justified in God's sight, for they're already justified. But rather to keep working at the spiritual outcomes of their salvation. And this is the sense in which Paul is now saying to the Romans, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Don't give it an opportunity. Don't feast your eyes on that which tempts you. Set your mind on that which is pleasing unto the Lord. Don't imagine evil things, but think on those things which are worthy of Christ. Deprive the sinful deeds of the body of those things that it needs to thrive and Feed your soul with the Word of God. And as time goes along, you will discover that the things that once plagued you, like the man in Romans 7, have grown steadily weaker, and you will be realizing the truth of the deliverance that Christ is accomplishing in you by the power of His Spirit. The working out of our salvation is possible because of the leading of the Spirit. And Paul says here that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now we want to be careful here that we do not get this reversed. That is, we are not sons of God because we are led by the Spirit, but rather the Spirit leads us because we are sons of God. It is because we are sons of God that God has sent us His Spirit to lead us. He writes to the Galatians, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now something that you may not necessarily know is that Paul does not refer to believers very often as sons. So this requires some special consideration here. He does so three times in this chapter. He will do so once again in chapter 9. And he does so in a couple of other letters, but it seems to me that his infrequent usage of the term elevates the relationship that occupies his thinking here as he writes this eighth chapter. We frequently hear people make the claim that everyone is a child of God, which is their way of pushing the notion of universalism. They're hoping against hope that God will not send anyone to the pit of destruction because they should be considered his own. That's their thinking. But we know from the full reading of Scripture that not all are saved. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So while everyone is a child of God in the sense that God is their creator, it is not true in the sense that all are redeemed. It is true that God's reign falls upon the just and the unjust, but God's grace does not. God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. And in the same way that you may have a love for children, perhaps even all children, there is a different and unique relationship that you have with your own children and with your grandchildren. And for them, you have a very special love. 
One that is expressed in very different and favorable ways. Grace abounds in those relationships. Protective measures are taken with them that you do not take with the rest of the children in the neighborhood. You do not feel a sense of responsibility for other children that you do for your own sons and daughters. You provide for them in ways that are designed to bless them and help them to mature. Their futures are of a concern to you in ways that are unique. This is what Paul is calling attention to here as he refers to us as sons. And he underscores this in the next verse when he declares, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So not only has God justified us in His sight by means of Christ's atoning work, not only has God imputed to us the righteousness of Christ and regenerated us to new life by means of His own indwelling Spirit, not only have we been placed in Christ such that all that happened to Christ has happened to us, not only has God broken the power of sin in us and set us free from it and established peace between us, but God has also made us a part of His family by adopting us as His sons, encouraging us to call upon Him in ways that are intensely familiar. And this speaks to us once again of God's intentional action in our redemption. To adopt a child involves an act of the will that is different from natural procreation. To procreate is to have hope that all will naturally work. But the fact is, there's no guarantee. Infertility issues can abound. Complications and miscarriages do occur. But adopting... Adoption is to willfully act in a way that brings a child who already is into a family relationship where they will belong, where they will be a son or a daughter with all the rights and privileges that entails. And Paul is saying that God has enlarged his own family by welcoming into it a host of sons and daughters who are not of a second order, but they are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now we do not have time to delve into all that that entails right now, nor can we possibly imagine all that will mean for those who are in Christ. Paul writes, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In Jesus' parable of the final judgment when the sheep are separated from the goats, that moment comes when those who have been redeemed will hear the king say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Paul is highlighting here that our redemption in Christ not only involves all that we have covered so far in this letter, but it goes so far beyond that. God is ultimately bringing about our glorification. 
God is preparing us for the kingdom that we will inherit in eternity. But that preparation involves our being conformed to the image of His only begotten Son. It involves our being treated as true sons and daughters, which involves discipline and chastening and correction. Not out of anger, but as a loving act of training so we will better understand how it is that sons and daughters of God carry themselves in the kingdom. And there are times when it will be painful and we will suffer because we are slow to understand, but it will ultimately be to our good so that every day we will continue to conform to the image of God. Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To minimize that discomfort, we can begin to walk in the Spirit more eagerly. We can begin to cooperate more fully as the Spirit seeks to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We can willingly work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and not be obstinate, knowing that our loving Heavenly Father only desires that which is truly good for us. And through it all, we can take pleasure in knowing that what God is doing in us is reserved for those who truly are His sons and His daughters. Let me invite you to join me in a moment of prayer this morning.